Hi, good morning everyone. Welcome to our webinar covering litigation options for EB-5 investors. We're going to get started in just a minute. First, we're going to put up a slide to help those that are figuring out their audio options while everyone logs on. We're also going to be having a Q&A session at the end, but you can feel free to enter your questions in the window pane on the right-hand side of your screen, and we'll do our best to answer all of the questions during the webinar. So I'm going to just give you guys a few minutes to hopefully um, fix all audio and other technolo technological issues. Um, while you're doing that, I would like to introduce our speakers today. Uh, both of them need no introduction, but I will try anyway. I have with us Ron, who is the managing partner of Classco Immigration Law Partners. Ron is well known in the litigation circle. He was the lead attorney on two very famous um, treaty investor cases, the matters of Wash and Pollard. He's also been the co-counsel of the Guilford College case, which produced a nationwide preliminary injunction preventing implementation of USCIS's F and J unlawful presence memo, which was causing a lot of strife over the last year or so. Ron is a former national president and three-term general counsel of AILA, and he's the only lawyer that's been honored twice with AILA's highest honor, the Founders Award. And I also have with me Dan Lundy, who is a partner at Clasco, and he's represented a number of EB-5 investors, regional centers, um, but he's also very well adept at litigation cases. He's handled over 70 immigration litigation cases in federal court right now, and he's been involved in litigating USCIS denials of EB-5 petitions based on material change and redemption agreements as well. So the Ron and Dan will be able to answer any questions you have with respect to litigation. My name is Anu Nair. I'm a partner here at Clasco as well, and I help manage the EB-5 investor team. So let's get started on today's litigation panel. As you probably have seen from a number of our emails, this is the second part in a four-part series about litigation. And all of this stems from what a lot of people on the call have probably seen in their daily lives, which is that there has been unreasonable delays by USCIS in almost every aspect of immigration. So today, uh, specifically, we're talking about EB-5 denials, but stay tuned next week when we start talking about um, litigation for universities, hospital researchers, or for individuals, non-EB-5 clients, and for nationals as well. So in order to figure out how we want to target today's webinar, I want to start a poll. I want to figure out how, what the role are for our listeners in the EB-5 industry. So let us know if you are a investor, a developer, or regional center attorney. That will help us figure out um, how to gear this webinar to make it uh, more for you. So on your screen right now, there should be a poll if you can get started on. All right, perfect. So it looks like we have about 42%, about half regional centers, about a quarter investors, and a quarter of other attorneys as well. And then my next question is going to be if you have a pending 924, 526 adjustments, CS260s or 829, and we're trying to figure out where you are getting stuck. 
So now it looks like 67% or so have 526 petitions pending, a handful of 829s, and others don't have any petitions pending. So perfect. So Ron, um, if you would like to take us through the background of the EB-5 processing times that I think have gone from two months when I first started to significantly more than that. Significantly more, Anu, yes. Um, so as, as you know, we've been involved in the EB-5 program since the beginning in the 90s, and uh, uh, we did complain when the processing times went from two months to four months. Uh, and it, it's gotten longer and longer, but within the last year to a year and a half, it's gotten what, what some would say just uh, ridiculously long. Uh, it, uh, it, as of March, the published processing times were about 21 months. And then after March, they doubled. Uh, and they said up to now 45 months is normal. Now, uh, there's two different aspects to that. One is that, uh, in, in my opinion, they did that to try to immunize themselves against the many, many, many mandamus cases that our firm and other firms were filing. Uh, and uh, I don't think it has accomplished that because the mandamus cases have still been uh, successful. Um, and however, they really have. And it's not just putting it down as increased uh, times on the, on the processing list. They really have intentionally delayed cases. So uh, we, we have seen uh, approximately, uh, we think about 15% of the normal level of adjudications in 2019 compared with previous years. So uh, th there's no good reason for that, and it does seem to be an intentional attempt to slow things down. And we're gonna talk about mandamus, and, and basically uh, we've explained to our clients that they have a choice of, of um, uh, deciding to uh, to wait or to litigate, and the one of the purposes of our uh, panel today is to talk about uh, what people who don't want to wait can do about it. And that's a perfect segue for Dan. If you can through, if people don't want to file a mandamus in federal court, what options do they have to get their cases moving along? Well, generally, you have a couple of options. None of them really good. Uh, the first is to call the USCIS customer service number and, and the, 800, the 800 number and try to talk to a customer service specialist there. Uh, the result is usually a lot of wait time on the phone and uh, basically nothing. You'll get a stock email saying your case is, you know, your case is in line for processing it. We're, you know, our processing times are longer than we'd like. Um, too bad, wait. Uh, your next option is to email the IPO, which you will get the same stock response, uh, standard form email saying, we're sorry, our case processing time is longer than we would like, uh, you know, please have patience, we're working on it, which means nothing. <coughs> um, you can also make an inquiry through the USCIS Ombudsman's office. The Ombudsman's office is, is uh, an independent department within USCIS that is supposed to be there to help uh, stakeholders resolve problems and issues with USCIS. Uh, once upon a time, this actually worked um, you know, several years ago. Right now, it's pretty much useless. You can make the inquiry. Uh, they generally take months to process your inquiry. By the time they get back to you, you know, I, I don't know, Anu, what your experience is, but my last 
experience of the ombudsman's office is they they acknowledged receipt of our inquiry three months after we made it, and about seven months after we made it, they said your case is still processing. So it's been utterly worthless. Yeah, I mean, especially now that they've increased the processing time, as Ron was mentioning, you know, part of it we think was to limit these mandamus actions, but it allows them to ignore a lot of our requests for updates and adjudications. Because now if we reach out two years into a petition pending, we get those stock responses saying your case is within processing time. And even if we get the ombudsman's office involved, the ombudsman's office really doesn't do much more than us. They just reach out for an inquiry and SIS responds to them the same way they respond to us, which is the case is within processing time. Now, uh, another option that we used to use and used to be effective once upon a time was making uh, an inquiry through your local congressional office, either your congressperson or your senator. Uh, they all have immigration liaison people to interface with USCIS. However, what we found in the last several years is USCIS simply won't talk to them. Um, they're not allowed to have ex parte communication with, with anybody. You know, they, they can't talk to anybody about your case uh, except for you or your attorney, and while you know congressional offices used to be able to get some kind of response from USCIS, USCIS generally doesn't care at this point and pretty much blows them off. It's, it's very rare that your congressperson or senator is going to be able to get any kind of meaningful response about the status of your case. So if a client decides that they don't want to go through the options that you just mentioned, uh, get stock responses, or they've tried all of these responses or ways to get action and they really haven't received any meaningful information from USCIS, um, they usually come to me and go, what's my next option? And the first question when I explain a mandamus is, what is a mandamus? Because it's not something a lot of clients have heard about. So first thing, mandamus is not an EB-5 concept. Um, we have done many hundreds of mandamus cases for every imaginable type of immigration petition, adjustment of status, naturalization, EB1, H1s, etc. This is something that exists anytime a government agency is delaying an adjudication. Uh, and it, uh, what it means is simply you file a complaint electronically um, with the court saying that uh, the case has been pending this amount of time. For these reasons, we think that's too long, uh, and we want to request a court to order the government to adjudicate the case. When you're doing this, there's actually two sections of the law. Uh, one is, is the federal mandamus statute, and the other is the Administrative Procedure Act, uh, which has remedies for, quote, unreasonable delay. And we make both allegations in the complaint. Um, and uh, this is really the only mechanism that is likely to accomplish anything to get action. And in almost every case, it gets action. But what, what I always make sure we explain to our clients, this is not something where we're asking a court to order the case to be approved. On a mandamus case, the court does not have that authority. It's simply uh, requesting an order that the government decide the case. And then, you know, if there's an approval, that's great. If there's an RFE, we deal with it. If there's a denial, then we can go back to federal court to challenge the denial. So a mandamus is a, is a request to a federal court to order the government agency to make a decision. 
Okay, so if a client decides that they want to take this mandamus on, when would be the ideal time for them to start preparing for the mandamus and to start filing the mandamus? So I guess I'm going to have to jump ahead a little here. There's a couple of considerations for that. The goal of a mandamus, when we file a mandamus, our goal is actually not to fight it out and get a court decision um, awarding uh, you know, a judgment against USCIS. Our goal is to get the case resolved as quickly as possible, and the way we usually do that in 95% in or more of cases is we settle. We file the case, we talk to the U.S. attorney, who talks to the USCIS, USCIS then magically adjudicates the case. <laughs> and then we dismiss the action. Which is not really settling, it's a right. total victory. We, yeah. right. we wanted yeah. them oh, yeah. to decide, and they decide. Yeah. So, it, it's, yeah, it's success. Yeah. Um, so, if they don't agree, then we have to go to motions for summary judgment. We have to spend you know a fair amount of time drafting motions and responding to motions and waiting for a judge to decide. So, when you file, it has a lot to do with whether or not the government is going to challenge the mandamus or they're going to just agree to adjudicate the case. So. Generally, if the case is not beyond normal processing time, then we have a weaker case and a more and a greater likelihood that the government is going to fight the mandamus. However, when USCIS has artificially inflated its processing time, we're still going by the the March um, processing time of 21 months. If you're if you're beyond 21 months, we're comfortable filing the mandamus because we think that's a more realistic picture of the timing than the 45 months. Um, the other thing, you know, the other consideration is if there are any special, you know, anything special about your case. If you have a humanitarian need, if you've got a sick relative, if, if there is a very special circumstance about your case, then we might consider filing earlier or even much earlier. It, it really depends, but it, it, there's got to be something about your case that's different from everybody else's case that makes your need to get the petition, approved, you know, adjudicated more urgent than everybody else. Um, otherwise, generally, we, we advise that, you know, that 21 to 24 months um, on, a, on a 526 is generally where we file. Now, uh, mandamus, so uh, we, we, mandamus is to challenge processing time, but the, what we're alleging is that the processing time is not reasonable. Now, there's certainly an argument that USCIS processing time in general is not reasonable. However, it's a harder battle to fight if we're not beyond the normal processing time. So Ron had previously mentioned that we are seeing a complete slowdown in adjudication this year. So we went from seeing, you know, let's say last year we had 100 approvals, this year it was about 17 or less than that, just no adjudication. Would we still stick with the same two-year timeline if this were to continue, if the lack of adjudications were to continue? I think at some point, if, if USCIS consider, continues to process roughly 10% of the petitions per year that it did, you know, last year and the year before, um, you know, in, in, 2000, in fiscal year 2018, USCIS actually processed 15,000 I-526 petitions. So it clearly has the capacity to process petitions. It's simply choosing not to. Uh, if this continues for for a prolonged period, yeah, I think eventually we're probably going to start filing earlier. 
and uh, you know, with bigger groups of, of plaintiffs. Yeah, we, we are actually considering, Dan, you and I have talked about this, uh, a, uh, a multiple plaintiff mandamus, um, including plaintiffs from different projects, because this is not uh, what it previously was, which is one case that was taking too long that we're going to court on. This is now uh, under the Administrative Procedure Act unreasonable delay language. This is all cases being unreasonably delayed. And we think there's a realistic possibility that a judge would say that 45, even if government says 45 months is normal, that's unreasonable. Um, and uh, we, uh, uh, for those on the call who are interested in this, we may be looking in the very near future for plaintiffs who are interested in being part of a, of a mass uh, mandamus action. And so on, on the next slide, Anu, uh, I guess we're just to tie this up, um, when we filed the mandamus complaint, um, Dan used 95%. I wouldn't quibble with that. Uh, it's certainly an exceedingly high percentage of the cases. The results are that magically, usually within two to three months, I'd say, uh, maybe two to four months, uh, the, uh, there is an adjudication. Uh, and it's actually not magic because what happens is once we file the complaint, we wait for the government attorney to enter his or her appearance, uh, and then we're on the phone with the government attorney. The government attorney is usually not very interested in litigating this case. It's uh, Number one, it's not the kind of thing that they want to do. That's not why they became U.S. attorneys, is to explain to a court why government can't get around it for four years to deciding a case. And so they will usually go back to their client, the Immigration Service, and say, we don't want to fight this case in court. Just do whatever, you know, prove it, deny it, do what you have to do. Uh, and as I said, usually within two to four months, the result is that uh, we have an adjudication. So once the mandate, let me backtrack a little. When I have clients who come to me, they're at various stages of the EB-5 process. So Dan, I know you work a lot with regional centers, so they're filing 924s. We have investors filing 526, 829s, adjustments, DS-260s. So there's multiple kind of steps in the process where a petition can be delayed. Are there any restrictions on when or in what process the investor can file a mandamus action? No, the beautiful thing about mandamus is that we can file it for any type of immigration uh, application or petition. So if your 526 is delayed, that's fine. If your 829 is delayed, that's fine. If your visa is delayed at the consulate, um, excessively, we can even file a mandamus to compel the, the consulate to act. But I've been hearing, you know, a lot of our clients, um, not just for EB-5 petitions, but they get stuck in administrative processing at the consulate. Would a mandamus action be the appropriate response, or can it be one of the responses to get those administrative processing cases unstuck? It absolutely can. I mean, so the... the, the so one of the things that we do when you come in and say, hey, my case is delayed, I want to file a mandamus, is we look at your case, we ask you a bunch of questions, and we try to figure out if there's a reason. The only time I've ever seen the government fight a mandamus is where there was a reason. Like where, you know, if, if somebody was stuck in security checks because they're, you know, a bad actor or if they have a criminal background, you know, they, they, there's got to be something special about you in a negative way um, that would 
usually for the government to fight a mandamus. So, you know, administrative processing at, at the consulate, they just seem to do on a regular basis to almost everybody for no yeah. particular good reason. If you have something in your background that really deserves, you know, that's going to generate extra scrutiny, we might advise you to sit and wait. But normally, yeah, we, we can absolutely file um, a mandamus and try to get that resolved. So we've put together some of the frequently asked questions where our regional center clients or our investor clients ask us when they're talking about EB-5 delays and possible mandamus actions. So if you guys can, you know, take me through a few of these frequently asked questions, and the first one I'll kick off is, uh, you know, a lot of investors want to go together in a group and they feel comfort in, a, in, in suing the government as a group. So is it possible to get multiple investors in the same project as... Yeah, we, we've had... Uh, the, the answer is yes, and we've had uh, situations where we've had 70, 80, 90 investors in a project all as plaintiffs, uh, and that's becoming fairly normal. So you, you have a number of situations where the regional center or the project um, will uh, uh, sponsor, in effect, the litigation uh, and uh, often pay for the litigation. And from our point of view as the attorneys, whether it's one plaintiff or a hundred plaintiffs, there's you know some more work involved when there's a hundred plaintiffs, but uh, we can do the litigation at uh, a, uh, a fixed fee uh, that uh, is not you know, terribly more if there's a lot of plaintiffs than if there's one. And US, uh, USCIS has this dirty little trick where um, they will, if you file a mandamus for five investors out of 100, they will adjudicate those five cases. You ask them about the rest of the cases and they'll say, sorry, they weren't plaintiffs. So unless you are a plaintiff, you will not benefit from the mandamus action. And what's been our firm's history with uh, mandamuses? I know we did a handful before, but now it's definitely booming the number of cases we've done. Yeah, we've uh, we've never done more EB-5 mandamuses than we are doing now. We're doing really quite a number. Some of them are multiple plaintiffs and some are just one plaintiff. Um, and uh, I think in recent times, we have 100% of the cases that end up getting adjudicated without going to court decisions. So what are the advantages and disadvantages of filing this mandamus? And I'm going to wrap up a few questions together, because one of the biggest concerns and one of the biggest disadvantages that investors believe um, will happen is that USCIS will somehow retaliate against them. And my short answer on that, and we do get asked that, is that um, in in Several in some decades of involvement in mandamus cases that I've had, I have never seen a situation where uh, I thought there was retaliation because we filed a mandamus. Um, that doesn't mean every case will be approved. If the case was going to be denied anyway, uh, it will be denied, and we'll have to deal with that at that point. But uh, I have seen no evidence whatsoever of retaliation. Okay. Can um, can you take us through the legal fees aspect of the mandamus? I mean, I'm not going to discuss our fees, uh, you know, in detail on a webinar. But um, you know, we've we've done enough of these that we've been able to to set a flat fee for investors that's really rather affordable. I mean, generally, most times it, it costs you know less than filing a 526. Um, we we tend to bifurcate the fee, so there's a fee to file the complaint and negotiate and try to get a settlement. 
and then there's an additional fee if we have to go to, to motions for summary judgment. However, that happens so infrequently <coughs> that we can also set a relatively low flat fee for that. Okay, and then um, what's the possibility <coughs> that the government will have to pay the, filing, uh, the legal fees? So uh, there's something called the Equal Access to Justice Act, which would require the government to pay uh, attorney's fees. However, in order for the government to pay attorney's fees, you have to be a prevailing party. In order to be a prevailing party, you generally have to get a decision from the court. So if we negotiate a settlement and get the case adjudicated without a court decision, there's no uh, attorney's fees from the government. It's only if we go that route, we have to fight it out, then we could possibly seek attorney's fees. And I spoke previously about advantages and disadvantages of filing a mandamus. One of my client's biggest worries is that it's going to cause a conflict with regional centers. So do you find that regional centers tend to support mandamuses, or do you think that there are potential I've conflicts? I've never seen a regional center tell an investor, no, don't file a mandamus. The only, so again, before filing a mandamus, we're going to evaluate your case and advise you whether or not it's a good idea to file a mandamus. The only time there might be a conflict and it might not be in your interest to file a mandamus, you know, let's say a, a project is delayed. Um, everything's fine. It's going to be fine. Project's just been delayed. If we get an RFE now, we're going to have to submit evidence to the to the to USCIS, and it's going to show that the project is delayed. If we um, if it would be better to get an RFE six months from now than today, we're going to advise you not to file a mandamus. That's the only time when a regional center might say, you know, maybe you want to wait on the mandamus. Uh, other than that, there's generally no conflict. So uh, another major question that we tend to get repeatedly is can we find copies of filings or decisions online? Because the biggest concern is a lot of clients don't know if a mandamus action actually works. Yeah, in mandamus cases, almost never, and there's a good reason for that, and that's because there's never a, de a decision. Um, as we said, in almost every mandamus case, uh, the government ends up adjudicating the case before the court makes a decision, so there's no decision to put online. Next thing I'm going to talk about is when there's denials and filing declaratory judgment actions. And those sometimes do result in decisions and those you can find online. So we're moving on to the next portion of our webinar, which is litigation to address EB-5 denials. So I'm going to put up a really quick poll on um, if you have any petitions that have been denied and which petitions have been denied. So while we're waiting for that, um, Ron, if I can have you take us through the options of an EB-5, of any part of the EB-5 process being denied, what are the client's options? Sure. So you can always file a new petition in the EB-5 area. That's almost never a good option uh, because you're starting all over again with another four-year delay, so we almost never would recommend that. And, and your priority date. Your with a new priority date, yeah. and if you're from China or Vietnam or India, you're, uh, you're in big trouble. Um, Anytime you have a denial, you can file within 30 days a motion to reopen if you have more evidence that you didn't give before. Um, very rarely will that result in anything of value, and we you know, usually won't do that. Uh, so you, you usually have two options. One is appealing to the Administrative Appeals Office of USCIS, or the second is filing a declaratory judgment complaint in federal court. Um, our office's uh, recommendation 
uh, almost always is that it's not a good idea to appeal to the AAO for at least two reasons. Uh, one is it's very rare that the AAO overturns an EB-5 decision of the Immigration Service. And two is it usually takes uh, a year or more before you know that they're not going to overturn the decision. Whereas if we go to federal court on a declaratory judgment complaint, um, it is likely, A, it has a better chance of being successful, and B, we're likely to get a decision way sooner than we would uh, by from the AAO. Oh, and also the AAO, so if you appeal your case to the AAO, you give USCIS one more chance to write a better decision that's harder to litigate. Right. Uh, so what is a declaratory judgment, Dan, and how can we assess whether our client's case is appropriate for this type of complaint? So declaratory judgment is just is a jurisdictional statute. Um, the complaint is really under the Administrative Procedures Act, which gives the courts the ability to review a denial of a decision of an administrative agency. Um, you know, including, uh, including the complaint, obviously, is all the facts of the case, the decisions. Um, an APA case is generally decided on the record of proceedings, so it's generally the administrative record. Um, rarely, but occasionally, we can get discovery. Uh, you know, for instance, if we're alleging that USCIS has uh, approved something thousands of times over years and years and years and suddenly decided not to approve it, then we may be able to get discovery on a pattern or practice claim to show that they've arbitrarily changed their position on something. Um, but it's rare. The, the, the case is usually just on the administrative record, which actually going back is one of the reasons that you might file a motion to reopen is if the record isn't quite as good as it could be, we might want to put a little extra evidence in there before we go to court, because once you get to court, you can't submit anything new. And then you're going to have to balance whether or not you want a, a better decision, better decision yeah. or denial. Yeah. Or, uh, okay, so Ron, if you can take us through what happens after a declaratory judgment complaint is filed? Yeah, so uh, there's a couple possibilities. Um, one, and again, just like with the mandamus, we're gonna be on the telephone with the government attorney discussing the case, uh, and it is not unusual that the government will decide to not proceed with the litigation. Uh, the way that usually works is the government on its own motion will reopen the denial and do something. Now that something could be issuing another RFE, uh, it could be approving the case. If, uh, again, if it issues an RFE, we're gonna deal with the RFE and hopefully get it approved. Uh, if it uh, denies again, then we're right back uh, often with the same federal court that, that, that we were. If the government's going to fight the case, and this does happen more often in declaratory judgments than in mandamus, uh, then what's going to happen is both parties are going to file motions for summary judgment, which basically means we're going to say, based on the record, we think we're right under the law. The government's going to say, based on the record, we think we're right under the law. And then it becomes a, a you know right for the judge to make a decision of under the law who's right. And, and if we're right, then we will get the denial overturned in federal court. So what's the timing on these types of cases and what type of EB-5 issues have we litigated in this manner? So if we, if we settle, so the timing, so we file the complaint, the government has 60 days to answer. During that 60 days, we usually talk with the U.S. attorney. If they're going to settle, I'd say if they're going to reopen the case and they're not going to fight it, we're probably talking around four months. I mean, no guarantees with the government. It's always 
know, some variation, but four months is about average. Uh, if they're going to fight it and we're going to wait for a judge to make a decision, we're, we're talking six months to a year. What EB-5 issues do you expect will be litigated? Well, so far, I mean, we've been litigating material change. We've been litigating uh, sorts of funds. Um, we've been litigating redemption issues and, and contract issues. Um, <clears throat> we, we anticipate in the very, very near future, we're going to be litigating uh, regional center termination. We know that USCIS just adopted a policy that where a regional center is terminated, uh, they're required to deny and or revoke all five, all 526 petitions associated with that. So for the investors who haven't yet gotten their conditional green card, even if they have an approved 526, if a regional center is terminated for completely unrelated reason, nothing to do with your project, that means you're out of luck. And uh, I mean, that's, I mean, we, uh, in our opinion, that's kind of a ridiculous policy that punishes innocent investors. And we anticipate that's going to be litigated very shortly. So is there any difference in strategy if a client comes to you with a 526 denial versus an 829 denial? Yes. So the tricky thing about 829 denials is if your 829 is denied, you get an opportunity to renew it in removal proceedings in front of an immigration judge. If the notice to appear has been filed with the immigration court, there is no longer jurisdiction in the federal courts. You have to, you have to go through the removal process Go to go to the Board of Immigration Appeals if the if the judge denies your case, and then there would be an appeal to the to the federal courts of appeals after that. So it's kind of tricky. If, if we rush, we may be able to file before jurisdiction vests with the immigration court. Okay. Um, but if not, then we've got to we've got to fight it out in immigration court. And how do legal fees work in this? Um, I mean, it, it, every case is different. It depends, but generally we're able to set a flat fee for again filing the complaint, negotiating a settlement, uh, and another flash fee for briefing the, you know, um, going through the motions and all that. It, it's not going to be as, uh, you know, it, it's going to cost a little bit more than a mandamus because it's, it's a much more complicated case and we're in for, you know, if we have to actually fight a case, we're in for well over a hundred hours of, of time. So, um, but we're still able because we do so many and, and we've got it down to a science, we're able to offer a pretty reasonable fee. So right now I'm going to uh, open the, or give everyone the opportunity to ask questions. We do have a handful of questions that are coming in. The first question is suing over the policy manual regarding redeployment. Specifically, if job creation requirement is met, can we sue USCIS over, um, over redeployment issues and fight out the fact that maybe redeployment isn't necessary and allow investors to get their money back even before the 829 or the conditional period is completed? So, I mean, the answer is yes, you can sue over everything. Um, on the, on the, so there are a couple issues on redeployment we could sue over. One is, uh, you know, whether or not redeployment is required at all. Um, yeah, I, I, I I think we have a modest chance that it would have a modest chance of success at that. Um, the other issue is suing USCIS to get them to clarify their policy on what is an, a, an allowable redeployment, because right now there's almost no guidance on what an allowable redeployment is. And when they're taking four years to adjudicate an A29 petition and, you know, with a visa backlog, you could be redeploying, you know, five to 10 years before, USCIS adjudicates the case, if they have no policy and later adopt one, then you could be in for a surprise. 
which is unfair. So I think we would actually have a decent shot at litigating um, to force USCIS to, to issue guidance on what an allowable redeployment is. So in mandamus complaints that you've seen challenged or denied, what were the reasons? The uh, Honestly, it's been very rare that we've, we've seen these, uh, these types of cases denied, but uh, the reasons that have come up are things like uh, the, um, well, first it would be the issue of the time period is not unreasonable. Uh, you're, you're just trying to skip ahead of line of other people. There are other people who uh, have been pending longer than you have. Uh, rarely we've seen situations where a court will say that uh, the, uh, the timing is a discretionary issue. Timing of adjudication is a discretionary issue. Uh, that's that's not subject to review in court. That's rare. Um, rarely we've seen that the government will uh, argue that uh, because of security clearance delays, uh, that's the reason the case is pending, uh, and therefore the judge shouldn't intervene in issues of national security. Uh, these are some of the uh, examples in the, in the fairly rare cases where we've actually seen a case go to decision and the court uh, denied the mandamus. So we've spoken about mandamus actions if a petition has been pending for too long, but what if a petition received an RFE or annoyed, we responded to it, and then there's subsequently delays in adjudication? How long do you think investors should wait or, or can wait before they can sue over, or they can file a mandamus based on the RFE response delays. Well, the normal processing time includes RFEs, right? Because you know USCIS is very fond of issuing RFEs, um, so we, you know, in that normal processing time should be an RFE. Uh, if they've issued an RFE and you've responded to the RFE, and the case is outside of processing time, and it's been six months since the RF, since the RFE response, I would be comfortable filing a mandamus. You know, usually we would expect that, that I, I don't know what you're seeing, Hanu, but I, I would normally expect somewhere between 90 and 120 days after we file an RFE response to get a decision. And this is another one of those situations where last year I can give you an answer of usually 60 days, agreed that every once in a while up to 90, 120 days. This year things have changed drastically. We've had RFEs that were responded to, very simple RFEs that were responded to earlier this year that have been now pending six, seven, eight months. Again, a lot of clients are a little worried about filing a mandamus because uh, even though we've advised them that we don't think, and Ron, you mentioned that you haven't seen any retaliatory action, that seems to be kind of a major concern. One of the uh, frequent questions I get is, can anything be hidden uh, so it's, it is a retaliatory action, but the government is couching it in terms of national security or just standard processing. So, for example, are they going to be more likely to be audited? Are they going to be more likely to be stuck in administrative processing? Are they going to be the very few people that get called in for an interview? Yeah, I mean, the short answer on a lot of people don't understand this, but mandamus has become just so normal. Uh, as I mentioned, our office has filed hundreds of them uh, over, the, over the years. Uh, it, it's not like this is something where some government official says, oh my God, they're suing me, I don't like that. 
this is just part of the normal process. It's like responding to an RFP. Uh, and, and they have no inclination. And, and I can tell you, Anu, you know that I chair uh, the, the National Litigation Task Force of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. And we have a few of our members who are former government attorneys. And when you ask them this question, they kind of laugh, saying that it's kind of ridiculous. They have so much to do. They're going to worry about, well, who, who sued us? And how can we retaliate against them? And we're going to go back and tell the adjudicator that this guy's a it's, it's like a joke to them that, you know, that they would even have the ability to figure out how to do that, even if they wanted to. So it really is, is not, not an issue that uh, I'm concerned about or that I've ever seen my clients uh, harmed by. And the, the beautiful thing about a, a federal court proceeding is you have a judge who's, um, you know, imagine an angry principal in your elementary school. If, you, if, you, uh, if there are any shenanigans, he's going to call you out on it. And, uh, you know, he's going to embarrass the U.S. attorney. U.S. attorney is not going to want to defend actions that are, you know, retaliatory because they're not, you know, he knows it's outside the rules. So, you know, you have, you have a third party in there that's the voice of reason that is going to, going to put USCIS in their place if they try anything silly. So how do you decide when a denial issue would be appropriate as a class action? Um, so in, in immigration cases, we tend to, I mean, we, we can bring class actions. We tend to prefer not to because once you have a decision on an issue um that decision is is generally binding you know at, at least in within the circuit you know it may not be binding overall but once you have one decision one favorable decision if you have to go to court in another case you can use that you know to to support your case in another court case um but we can if if there is a uh, for instance, a shift in policy, like they changed their mind about uh, the, the loan issue on a source of funds, or if there is a clear policy change without notice and comment rulemaking uh, that results in a large number of cases that were previously approvable being denied, then we could certainly do a class action. We will usually look at other alternatives, including multiple plaintiff litigation, uh, before we look at class actions, simply because once you're involved in a class action, automatically you're likely to have a delay of at least a year or two, <clears throat> because the government will always fight the class action, the certification of the class, and in most cases our clients are not interested spending the next year uh, litigating the issue of whether there should be a class or not before we even get to the issue that we're going to court about. So we do have a number of questions left and not too much time. So I'm just going to ask one more question on the webinar about 829 mandamus actions. 829s technically are supposed to be adjudicated within 90 days or uh, be scheduled for an interview within 90 days. So would we recommend waiting two years after an 829 petition is filed to file a mandamus or shortly thereafter? Yeah, I would still recommend I mean, we could we could attempt to go in at the 90 days. I mean, I think actually at this point, because the the 820, the your conditional green cards automatically extended now for 18 months um, with the 829 receipt. I think after the 18 months, we would probably be comfortable, but I'd still recommend waiting. You know, closer to the two years. Um, you know, we we have we'd have we actually so 829 issue is. 
Um, USAS has gotten a little bit better about giving 551 stamps, but it used to be that, you know, you have an 829, your receipt would expire, you try to make an info pass appointment, the local USCIS office wouldn't understand that they have to give you a stamp. I mean, in order to get, you know, work authorization, travel authorization, you really had to jump through a lot of hoops. Uh, it's gotten a little better, but I, you know, the government is required by law to give you proof of your permanent resident status. So I think we might have a pretty decent case on an 829 that the delay is really causing you harm um, and holding you up. So unfortunately, that's it for us today. Thank you for attending. We hope you found this information useful. If you have any additional questions, you can feel free to reach out to any of us. Our contact information is up on the screen. And a recording of the webinar it will be available and emailed to everyone who registered. We also regularly publish blogs, articles, news alerts to our email list and social media. So you can feel free to sign up for our emails at classicallaw.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. We'll also be publishing a number of articles about this litigation issue. And as I mentioned at the outset, we have two more litigation webinars coming up in the next couple of weeks. I know we didn't get to a number of questions, but as I mentioned, stay tuned to our website and we do tend to answer a lot of those questions on our website as well. Thank you everyone.